Welcome to the Cynicism Podcast, where we will talk to experts from around the world to help us all better understand China. I am Bill Bishop, and I write Cynicism, a newsletter that helps you get smarter about China. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Cynicism Podcast. It's been a bit of a break, but we are back, and uh, we will continue going forward on a fairly regular schedule. Uh, today, for the fourth episode, I'm really happy to be able to uh, chat with David Reddy, the Beijing Beer Chief for The Economist and author of the weekly Chaguan column. Um, our topic today is online discourse, nationalism, and the intensifying contest for global discourse power. I've long been a fan of David's work, and the proximate cause for inviting him to join the podcast today was an article in the January 8th issue of The Economist on online nationalism. Welcome, David. Hello. So uh, just to start, could you tell us how you got to where you are today? I've been a foreign correspondent for a frighteningly long time, uh, 24 years, uh, and it's my second China posting. I've been there this so long. I've done two Chinas, two Washingtons, uh, five years in Brussels. I was here in the 90s, uh, and then I went off, spent a total of nine years in, in Washington, D.C., uh, and then I came back here in 2018, and I was asked to launch uh, a new ch- a new column about China called Chaguan, because I've written previously, I wrote our Lexington column and our Badgett column about Britain and our Charlemagne column about Europe. They all have strange names, but that's what we do. And so I've, this is my fourth column for The Economist. Uh, we last met, I think, in 2018 in Beijing in what seems like before times in uh, many ways, uh, at the opposite house, I believe. In the days when we had visitors, people <laughs> came from the outside world, all of those things. Uh, yes, you are you are quite the, uh, quite the survivor, as they say. Um, although, you know, there are advantages to not worrying about walking outside and getting sick all the time. Um, although it's better here in D.C. now. It's a, it's a very safe bubble. It's a very large bubble, but it's a, <laughs> it's a bubble. So let's talk about your article, the, the January 8th issue. Um, it, was, it was titled, China's Online Nationalists Turned Paranoia into Clickbait. And I thought it was a very good distillation of the surge in nationalists and anti-foreign content that, were, that we, you know, is really flooding or has flooded the internet in China. And you interviewed one of the people who's profiting it because it turns out that not only is it, is it good from a sort of a sentiment perspective, it's also good from a business perspective. And that person, Sile, interestingly enough, then recorded your conversation and turned it into a whole new post and video about um, the, the whole experience of talking to a foreign correspondent. Can you tell us a little about the story and why you chose to write it? And just to add, um, the links to David's article and the Sile article will be in the uh, podcast notes. So I heard from friends and colleagues uh, a couple of things in two directions. One was that in the world of private sector media, a couple of reasonably well-known explainer popular science uh, video companies had been taken out of business by nationalist attacks. Uh, What was called Paperclip, uh, the other called Elephant Union. And their crime in the eyes of online nationalists had been to talk about things which are fairly uncontroversial in Western media, that eating beef from the Amazon or eating beef that is fed soy grown in the Amazon is potentially bad for the rainforest and maybe we should eat less meat. But because this was uh, in the Chinese context, that China is the biggest buyer of soybeans, uh, this explainer video was attacked as a plot to deny the Chinese people the protein that they need to be strong, that this was a kind of race traitor uh, attack on on the kind of the Chinese. And it was outrageous because the West eats so much more meat than China. And and so that was one element of it. Uh, And I heard that these companies have been shut down. The other was that I'd been picking up that this was an extremely bad time for NGOs, particularly Chinese NGOs that get money from overseas. And we'd seen some really nasty attacks, not just on the idea that they were, you know, uh, getting money from overseas, but that they were somehow guilty of espionage. 
And there was an NGO that did incredibly benign work tracking maritime and marine trash uh, as it floats around the coasts of China, uh, based in Shanghai, Rendu Ocean. I'd, I'd done a column on them uh, the year before. I'd been out with their volunteers. It was a bunch of kind of pensioners and retirees and school kids picking up styrofoam and trash off beaches, weighing it, tracking where it came from, it, and then uploading this data to try and track the fact that China is a big generator of the plastic and, and other trash in the oceans. They were accused of espionage and uh, taking foreign money to track ocean currents that would help foreign militaries attack China, that they were guilty of grave national security uh, crimes. And they were attacked in a press conference, including at the National Defense Ministry. And they're basically now in a kind of world of pain. They're still just about clinging on. And so these two things, you have these NGOs under really serious attack. Uh, and you also have this attack on online explainer videos. The common theme was that the nationalist attack, they were somehow betraying the country and its national security, was a weird combination of not just the security forces, but also private sector Chinese online nationalists. And particularly, I was told there was a, a guy called Sile, that's his kind of nom de plume, who was one of the people making videos, taking on these people. He went after, you know, celebrities who talked about China should eat, be more careful about eating seafood. This was, again, he thought, you know, a sort of race trait. And he was using this really horrible language about uh, these celebrities who talked about, uh, you know, eating more sustainable seafood, that they were Uruguayza, which is this term about, uh, you know, the collaborationist uh, police officers who worked with the Japanese during the, during the Second World War. Uh, he calls them Hanjian, you know, these sort of traitors to the, to the Chinese race. Um, very, very loaded language. Went after a group uh, that's working with Africans uh, down in the south of China, talking about how they face discrimination. This got them attacked. Uh, they had talked also about the, the role of Chinese merchants in the illegal ivory trade that got them attacked by the nationalists. So I thought this is, you know, this question of whether the government is behind this or whether this is a kind of a private sector attack on, on that there's the kind of profits to be made from this online nationalism struck me as something I should write about. So I talked to some of the people whose organizations and companies had been taken down. Uh, they were very clear that they thought there was a kind of unholy nexus of profit, clickbait, and things like the Communist Youth League, uh, really right. liking, you know, the way that they can turbocharge some of these attacks. Especially on Billy Billy, they use that a lot. Especially too. on, yeah, yeah. And so there's this weird sort of sense that, and I spoke to some very serious NGO people who've been in China a long time, uh, Chinese and foreigners, who said that this was the worst time for NGOs uh, since 1989. And the kind of mes mention of espionage and national security was a very serious thing. So then I had to make a decision. Was I going to try and speak to someone like Sile? Uh, clearly he is, you know, an extremely aggressive nationalist. Some would call him a kind of troll. Uh, and there are risks involved in talking to someone like him. Um, but I felt, you know, I'm one of the few, uh, you know, English language, uh, media, you know, still in China. If I'm going to add value, I need to speak to these people. Yes. And so I reached out to the, uh, founder of a, of a big well-known nationalist website who I happen to know. And I said, do you know this guy, Sile? Uh, and he said, I do, I'll get in touch with him. Sile was very, very anxious about speaking to the Western media, thought I was going to sort of misquote him. And so eventually we did this deal that he was going to record the whole thing. And that if he thought I had sort of misquoted him, uh, that he was going to run the entire transcript on full, uh, on this other nationalist, very well-known nationalist website that had kind of made the introduction. So I said, okay, fine. I have nothing to hide. That's all good. I wrote the column. Uh, I quoted Sile. I didn't quote a tremendous amount of Sile because what he said was not especially revealing. He was just an extremely uh, paranoid guy and there was a lot of whataboutism. And, you know, he was saying, you know, 
or how would the American public react if they were told that what they eat damages the Amazon rainforest? I said, well, they're told that all the time. All I the mean, time. that's, you know, yeah. it's an incredibly familiar argument. You know, it's on the front page of American newspapers all the time. And so he just wasn't, you know, he wasn't willing to engage. And so, you know, I, I ran this. He then put out this attack on me. Uh, you know, it's fair dude. Look, I make a living, you know, handing out my opinions. Uh, I knew he was recording me. You know, was it a bit disappointing that he cut and edited it to make me sound as kind of bad as possible rather than running the full transcript? You know, I mean, I interviewed a troll and, and, and that was the thing. He attacked me on, a, on, on the basis of my family, which then triggered a whole bunch of stuff uh, that, you know, was you know, pretty familiar to me. A lot of Western journalists get a lot of attacks. And, you know, that's, you know, it was an unpleasant experience, but I, you know, I feel that the added value of being here is to talk to people, uh, you know, who The Economist does not agree with. And, you know, his fundamental problem was that I was using online nationalism as a kind of disapproving term. But, you know, my, my line with, with people like him or, you know, with, with some of the very prominent sort of uh, nationalists, online academics, sort of media entrepreneurs, also with the Chinese foreign ministry when I'm called in, is, you know, my job in China is to try to explain how China sees the world, to speak to people in China, to let their voices be heard in The Economist. And I absolutely undertake to try and reflect their views faithfully. But I do not promise to agree with them because The Economist does not hide the fact that we are a Western liberal newspaper. We're not anti-China. Uh, we, are, we are liberal. And so, you know, if we see illiberal things happening in Abu Ghraib or in Guantanamo Bay, uh, or, or being done by Donald Trump, or being done by Boris Johnson, or Brexit, or you know Viktor Orban, or in China, we will criticize them because we are we are what we say we are. We are a liberal newspaper. We have been since eighteen forty three. And what's interesting is that online the reaction was you know for a, for a while I was trending on Billy Billy, and that was you know that was new. And <laughs> I take that on the chin. I mean that you know that is you know I'm here. I'm attacking nationalists. They're going to attack back. I think what's interesting is that the online sort of nationalist attacks were, I hope that the Ministry of State Security arrests this guy. He should be thrown out of China. Why is he in China? They should be expelled. This guy has no right to be in China. I think that at some level, some parts of the central government machinery uh, do still see a value to having newspapers like The Economist, uh, you know, reasonably kind of well-read uh, Western media in China. And it's this conversation I've had a lot with the foreign ministry, with the State Council Information Office, which is, as you know, is the kind of the front nameplate right. for the propaganda bureau. And I say to them, you know, we are liberals. We are not anti-China any more than we're anti-American because we criticize Donald Trump. But, you know, you, you know where we're coming from. But I do believe that if China is concerned about how it's covered, if they throw all of us out, they're not going to get better coverage. I mean, some of the most aggressive coverage about China in, you know, in the States comes from journalists who never go to China, right? Um, and economists who never go to China. What I worry about is that there are other parts of the machine, whether it's the, you know, the Communist Youth League or whether it's the Ministry of State Security or some other elements in the machine who do also see a tremendous value in delegitimizing Western media full stop. Because, you know, if you're being criticized and you don't enjoy it, you know, tactic number one, whether you're Donald Trump talking about fake news or, you know, Vladimir Putin talking Putin. about, you know, hostile foreign forces or the Chinese is to, is to delegitimize your critics. And I do think that that is going on in a way that, you know, 
in the four years that I've been here this time, and if I think back to my time here 20 years ago, I do think the, the attempts to go after and intimidate uh, and delegitimize the Western media have, you know, they're, 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 they're getting more aggressive and they're trying new tactics, which are pretty concerning. So that's a great segue into the next question. But first, I just want to ask the nationalist website that you said, you know, ran Sile's piece, that was Guancha, right? Guancha.cn? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so you know, I, I mean, I know it's probably not a secret, but so I know a bit Eric Lee, Lee Shamor, right. uh, the co-founder of Guanchan. Yeah, Eric actually famous for his TED Talk, went to Stanford Business School, venture capitalist, and now is a, um, I guess he's affiliated with Fudan, I think, and is quite an active funder of all sorts of online discourse, it seems, among other things. That's right. And, and I would point out that The Economist, uh, we have this kind of by invitation online debate platform and we invite people to contribute. And we did, in fact, run a piece by Eric Lee, the uh, co-founder of Guanchar, the nationalist website, uh, a couple of weeks before this attack that Guanchar ran. And I actually had a debate with some colleagues about this, about whether, you know, as liberals, we're the kind of the, 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 kind of the suckers that allow people who attack us to, to write you know, he, he wrote a very cogent but fairly familiar argument about the performance legitimacy of the Communist Party and how that was superior to Western liberal democracy. And, you know, I think that it's the price of being a liberal newspaper. If we take that seriously, then we have to, we occasionally have to give a platform to people who will then turn around and attack us. And, you know, if I'm going to live in China and not see, you know, right. half my family for a very long period of time, and it's a privilege to live in China, but there are costs if you're an expat, then, you know, I'm not ready to give up on the idea of talking to people who we strongly disagree with. If I'm going to kind of commit to living here, to me, the, the only reason to do that is so you talk to people, not just kind of liberals who we agree with, but people who strongly disagree with us. No, and I think, I think that's right. And I think that also ties in for many years predating Xi Jinping, um, there's been this long-stated goal for China to increase its global discourse power, as they call it. Um, and to spread more sort of the tell the truth, uh, tell the real story, spread more positive energy about China globally instead of having, you know, foreign and especially Western or or I think and, and this ties into the some of the national stuff. Increasingly, what we hear is called the Anglo-Saxon media dominate the global discourse about China. And, you know, to be fair, China has a point. Right. I mean, there should be more Chinese voices talking about China globally. That's not an unreasonable desire or request from a country as big and powerful as China is. One thing that seems like a problem is, on the one hand, you've got the policymakers are pushing to improve and better control discourse about China globally. At the same time, they're increasing their control over the domestic discourse inside the PRC about the rest of the world. And so in some ways, yes, there's an imbalance globally, but there's also a, 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 a massive imbalance domestically, um, which seems to fit into sort of what, what you just went through with Sile and sort of where the trends are. I don't know. I mean, how, how do you see, like, how does China tell a more convincing story to the world in a way that isn't just kind of a constant struggle to use the term they actually use, but, but more of a actual fact-based, honest discussion? Or is that something that, that we're just not going to see anytime soon? I think there's a couple of elements to that. I mean, you're absolutely right that, that China, like any country, has the right to want to, you know, draw the attention of the, the world to stuff that China does that's impressive. And I do think, you know, one of my arguments when I talk to Chinese officials 
as to why they should keep, you know, giving out visas to people like me is, you know, when I think back to the beginning of the COVID pandemic, you know, I've not left China for more than two years. I've not, you know, left since the pandemic began. You had a lot of media writing that this incredibly ferocious crackdown uh, was going to be very unpopular with the Chinese public. And that's because at the very beginning, you know, you had people, you know, there's lots of stuff on, on Chinese social media, little videos of people being kind of beaten up by some kind of baoan in a, in a, in a village or tied to a tree or, right. you know, their doors being welded shut. And it did look unbelievably kind of uh, thuggish. Right. And, you know, people playing mahjong being arrested. And, but actually, about three weeks into the pandemic, and I was traveling outside Beijing and going to villages and then coming back and doing the kind of quarantine, you'd go into these kind of villages in the middle of, you know, Henan or uh, Hunan, and you'd have, you know, the earth berm at the entrance to the village and all the old guys in the red armbands right. with the kind of pitchforks and the kind of school desk at the entrance to the village with a kind of piece of paper because you've got to have paperwork as well. And you'd realize that this incredibly strict kind of grassroots control system that they'd put in motion, the grid management, the fact that the village, you know, loudspeakers were back up and running and kind of broadcasting propaganda was actually a source of comfort, that it gave people a sense that they could do something to keep this frightening disease at bay. And I think, to me, that's an absolute example that it's in China's interest to have Western journalists in China, because it was only being in China that made me realize that this strictness was actually welcomed by a lot of Chinese people. It made them feel safe and it made them feel that they were contributing to kind of a national cause by locking themselves indoors right. and obeying these sometimes very strange and arbitrary rules. In addition, I think you're absolutely right. China has the right to want the foreign media to report that stuff instead of, you know, looking at China through a Western lens and saying, this is draconian, this is ferocious, this is abuse of human rights. It's absolutely appropriate for China to say, no, if you're doing your job properly, you will try and understand this place on China's own terms. You will allow Chinese voices into your reporting and let them tell the world that they're actually comforted by this extremely strict zero COVID policy, which is tremendously popular with the majority of the Chinese public. Right. That is a completely legitimate ambition. And I never fail to take the chance to tell officials that's why they should give visas to have journalists in the country. Because if you're not in the country, you can't pick that stuff up. What I think is much more problematic is that there is, alongside that legitimate desire to have China understood on China's own terms, there is a very conscious strategy underway, which is, you know, talked about by some of the academics at Fudan who work for, you know, Eric Lee at Guansha as a kind of discourse war, a narrative war or, to, yeah. to redefine certain key terms. And, and the war, the term, and the term is really used like struggle. I mean, they see it as a, yeah. a real, a public opinion war globally. I mean, the, the language and is so, very martial in Chinese. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, do not say that we are not a democracy. If you say that we are not a democracy, you are ignoring our tremendous success in kind of uh, handling COVID. We are a kind of, uh, you know, we are a whole society democracy, which is, you know, it's basically a performance legitimacy argument right. uh, or a kind of collective utilitarian, you know, the, the maximizing the benefits for the largest number argument. It's not particularly new, but the aggression with which it's being pushed is new. And the extraordinary resources they put into kind of going after Western media for the language that we use about China. And I had a very interesting conversation with uh, a CGTN commentator who attacked me online on Twitter and said that I was a, uh, it was something like, if you scratch an Englishman, you'll find a drug dealer or a pirate. You know, there's a lot of opium war rhetoric right. around if you're a British journalist in, right. in China, you know, you're never too far from an opium war reference. And, you know, 
for the record, I don't approve of the Opium War, but it was also before my time. So I actually, I, you know, the guy attacked me fairly ag- aggressively on Twitter. So I said, you know, can you try and be professional? I'm being professional here. Why don't you be professional? He invited me with coffee. So we had coffee. And we talked about his kind of work for CGTN and for Xinhua and, and his view of kind of his interactions with Western media. And he said this very revealing thing. He said, you know, the reason we do this stuff is because it works. He said, you know, I can't tell you how many Western diplomats or Western journalists, they whine and they moan and they say how aggressive China is now and how upsetting all this wolf warrior sort of stuff is and how China is doing itself damage. And he goes, we're not. It's working. You in the Western media used to routinely say that the National People's Congress was a rubber stamp parliament. And because we went after you again and again, you see news organizations no longer as quick to use that. Right. Because we went after you calling us a dictatorship, you're now slower to use that term. Because we went after you about, you know, human rights and how it has different meanings in different countries, we think it's having an effect. And so I think that this attempt to kind of grind us down is working. Uh, or that in their view, it's working. And I think that that ties in with a kind of broader conversation that I have a lot in Beijing with, you know, foreign ambassadors or foreign diplomats who, you know, they get called into the foreign ministry, treated, you know, appallingly aggressively and shouted at and kind of humiliated. And they sort of say, how does the Chinese side not see that this causes them problems? And I think that in this kind of moment of, as you say, kind of a, an era of struggle, you know, this, this phrase that we see from speeches from leaders, including Xi, about, you know, an era of change not seen in 100 years, they really do feel that as the West, particularly America, is in decline, and as China is rising, that it's almost, you know, like there's a kind of turbulence in the sky where these two kind of the, the two axes are crossing. Right. And that China has to just kind of push through that turbulence. And to use a story that I, I had kept secret for a long time, but that I put in a column when Michael Kovrig was released. So, you know, listeners will remember Michael Kovrig is one of the two Canadians who was held for a couple of years, basically as a hostage by the Chinese uh, state security. And fairly early on, I had heard from some diplomats uh, in Beijing uh, from another uh, Western embassy, uh, not the UK, I should say, that the fact that Michael Kovrig in detention was being questioned, not just about his work for an NGO, the, the International Crisis Group that he was doing when he was picked up, but he was also being questioned about work he'd been doing for the Canadian embassy when he had diplomatic immunity. The fact that that was going on was frightening to Western diplomats in Beijing. And soon after that conversation, I was having a dinner, sitting next to this guy, uh, reasonably senior official. And, um, and I said to him, I explained this conversation to him and I said, you know, I'd just been having a conversation with these diplomats and they said the word that they used was frightened about what you're doing to Michael Kovrig. And I said, how does it help China to frighten people from that country? And he'd been pretty cheer- cheerful up till then, you know, he switched to English so that he could be sure that I understood everything he wanted to say to me. And he said with this absolutely glacial tone, he said, Canada needs to feel pain so that the next time America asks an ally to help attack China, that ally will think twice. And that's it. That's it. And it probably works. It works. And so, yeah. So I think that, you know, again, one of the things I think is a value of being here is you have these conversations where, you know, the fact that we in the, in the West think that China is inevitably making a mistake by being much more aggressive. I don't think that's how a big part of the machine here sees it. I think they think no, that I agree. And, I, and, I, it works. and I'm not actually sure that they're making a mistake. Because if you look at so far, what have the costs been? As you said, I mean, behavior is shifting, but 
I think it's it's definitely open for question. I mean, there, it's like the assumptions you still see this week, multiple columns about how China's COVID policy is inevitably going to fail. And, you know, <laughs> I'm sitting here in D.C., we're about to cross a billion people dead in this country, and I'm thinking, what's failure, right? It's a very interesting time. I mean, to, to that point about sort of this sort of attitude and and the way that there seem to be prosecuting a very top-down or top-level design kind of communication strategy. You know, John Weiwei, who's at Fudan University, um, and, and also I think a close, Eric Lee is a close associate of his, he actually was the discussant at a Politburo study session, one of the monthly set study sessions a few months ago, um, where I think the theme was on improving international communication and talking about, again, how to better tell China's story, how to increase the global discourse power, some people saw that as, oh, they're going to be nicer because they want to have a more lovable China image. I, I was very skeptical because I think that this kind of more aggressive tone is, is the sort of the shorthand is wolf warrior, wolf warriorism. I think really that seems to me to be more of a fundamental tenet of Xi Jinping thought on diplomacy about how China communicates to the world. Um, I mean, how, how do you see it and how does this get better or, or does it not get better for a while? It's a really important question. So I think, you know, what do they think they're up to? You know, at, to kind of simplify and exaggerate a bit, I think that China, and, and this is not just a guess, this is based on off-the-record conversations with some pretty senior uh, Chinese figures. They believe that the Western world, and in particular the United States, is too ignorant and unimaginative and Western-centric and probably too racist to understand that China is going to succeed, that China is winning, and that the West is in really kind of decadent decline. And so I think that these aggressive acts like detaining the two Michaels or, you know, their, their diplomatic kind of and economic coercion of countries like Australia or Lithuania, they, you know, they hear all the kind of pearl-clutching dismay from kind of higher visuals. In Brussels or in in Washington D.C. and the and the op eds and big papers about how how awful this is and the op eds and, and yeah 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 and self defeating and all of those things, but I think that what they believe they are doing is delivering an educational dose of pain, and I'm quoting a Chinese official with the word pain, and it is to shock us because we are too mule headed and thick to understand that China is winning and we are losing. And so they're going to keep delivering educational doses of pain until we get it. I think they think that's, that's what they're up to. And, and, and by getting it, basically stepping aside in certain areas and letting the Chinese sort of pursue some of their key goals, the core interests, whatever you want to call it. That we, yeah. that we accommodate, yeah. The fundamental message, I'm quoting a smart uh, friend of mine in Beijing here, is China's rise is inevitable. Resistance is futile. Right. Resistance and is if futile. You, and, if you, and if you accommodate us, we'll make it worth your while. That's the key message. And they think that some people are proving uh, dimmer and slower and more reluctant to, to pick that message up. And above all, Americans and Anglo-Saxons. And so they're, you know, giving us a touch of the wit. Now, do I think that that is inevitably going to be great for them? And you ask, you know, how does this end well? I mean, I guess my reason for thinking that they may yet pay some price, not a total price, is that, you know, they are engaged in a giant experiment. The Chinese government and party are engaged in a giant experiment that it didn't matter that much that the Western world was kind of permissive and open to engagement with China. 
that that wasn't really integral to their economic rise for the last 40 years, that China basically did it by itself, and that if the Western world becomes more suspicious and more hostile, that China will not pay a very substantial price because its market power and its own kind of manufacturing and industrial strength will kind of push on through. And so there'll be a period of turbulence, and then we will kind of realize that we have to accommodate. And I think that in many cases, they will be right. There will be sectors where industries don't leave China. They, in fact, you know, double down and right. reinvest. And, and we're seeing that right now. But I do worry that there are going to be real costs paid. I mean, I think, you know, when I think back to, uh, you know, I did a special report for The Economist in May 2019 about U.S.-China relations. And one of the parts of that was the extraordinary number of Chinese students in U.S. colleges. And I went to the University of Iowa and I spoke to Chinese students and and, you know, that now, you know, the, 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 the levels of nationalism and hostility on both sides and the, and the kind of the fear uh, in American campuses, you know, that's, that's a real cost, right? I mean, I think if you imagine China's relationship with the Western world, particularly the U.S., as a kind of fork in the road with two forks, one total engagement, one total decoupling, then absolutely China is right. There's not going to be total decoupling because... You know, we are as dependent as we right. ever were on China's. It's just not realistic. China is an, an enormous market and also, you know, the best place to get a lot of stuff made. But I wonder, and, uh, you know, it's a, an image I've used in a column, I think. I think that the relationship is, is, is not a fork in the road with kind of two forks. It's a, tr it's a tree with a kind of a, a million branches. And each of those branches is a decision. Does this Western university sign a partnership with that Chinese university? Does this Western company get bought by a Chinese company? And does the government approve of that? Does this Western media organization sign a partnership with a Chinese media organization? Does this, you know, Western country buy a 5G network or an airliner or uh, a data cloud service or autonomous vehicles from China that as kind of products and services with very high value added, where China wants to be a kind of dominant player, and that's an entirely reasonable ambition because China's a, a big right. high-tech power now. But a lot of these very high value added services or these relationships between universities or businesses or governments, in the absence of trust, they don't make a bunch of sense. Because if you don't trust the company whose you know, cloud is holding your data or you know, the, the company who's made you the autonomous car, which is filled with microphones and sensors and knows where you were last night and what you said in your car last night, if you don't trust that company or the country that made that, none of that makes sense. And I think that China's willingness to show its teeth and to uh, use economic coercion and to go to kind of European governments and say, if you don't take a fine Chinese 5G network, you know, we're going to hurt you. You know, if you boil that down to a bumper sticker, you know, that's China saying to the world or certainly to the Western world, stay open to China or China will hurt you. Trust China or China will hurt you. That's the kind of core message for a lot of these wolf warrior uh, right. ambassadors. And that's the core message to people like me, a kind of guy who writes a column living in Beijing. and. A lot of the time, China's market power will kind of make that okay. Yeah. But I think that if you look at that tree with a million decisions, maybe more of those than China was expecting will click from a, no, a yes to a no, right? If you're a Western university, do you now open that campus in Shanghai? Right. Do you trust your local Chinese partner when they say that your academics are going to have freedom of, of speech? Right. And, and what's heartbreaking about that is that the victims of that are not going to be, you know, the Politburo. It's going to be, you know, people on the ground. It's going to be researchers and students and consumers and, and on both, uh, on you both know, sides. I mean, that's, on both sides. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. So that's uplifting. <laughs> no, I, I, I could mean, be I, worse. 
I've got worse. Wait till the next question. <laughs> I think I, I really appreciate your time and to be respectful of it. I just have two more questions. Um, one is really about just being a foreign correspondent in China and the Foreign Correspondents Club of China put out its annual report, I think, earlier this week. And it's, again, as depressing a read as it's been in years and every year is extremely depressing. But one of the backdrops is really the the first foreign ministry press conference of last year, of 2021. It, it really struck me that um, Hua Chuying, who is, she's now the, um, Hua is now, I think, assistant foreign minister or vice foreign minister. Mm-hmm. At the time, she was the, the head of the information office and the, I think the, one of the spokespeople. She made a statement about how it was, it was you know, kicking off the 100th anniversary year. Um, and I'm just going to read her a couple sentences to get a sense of the language. Um, so she said, and this was on the, uh, I think it was January 4th, 2021. In the 1930s and 1940s, when the Kuomintang government sealed off Yan'an and spared no efforts to demonize the CPC, foreign journalists like Americans Edgar Snow, Anna Louise Strong, and Agnes Smedley, curious about who and what the CPC is, chose to blend in with the CPC members in Yan'an and wrote many objective reports as well as works like the famous Red Star Over China, giving the, the world the first clip of the CPC and its endeavor in uniting and leading the Chinese people in pursuing national independence and liberation. And then went on with more stuff about how basically wanting foreign correspondents to be like Snow Strong or Smedley. How did that go over? And I mean, is that just part of the you're welcome as long as you're telling the right story message? So there was a certain amount of, uh, yeah, I mean, we also got this from our handlers at the MFA, you know, why can't it be more like Edgar Snow? And I fear the first time I had that line in the meeting, I was like, well, he was a communist. So yes. if, 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 that's, if that's the bar, then, uh, then I'm probably going to meet that one. You know, Edgar Snow went to Yan'an. He spent a tremendous amount of time in Mao, hours interviewing Mao. If Xi Jinping wants to let me interview him for hours, I'd be up for that. But I would point out that Edgar Snow, after interviewing Mao for hours, then handed the transcripts over to Mao and had them edited and then handed back to him. And that probably would not be... doesn't work at The Economist? That wouldn't fly with my editors, no. No. So uh, I think we may have an an insuperable problem there. Look, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, isn't it the phrase that Trump people used to talk about working the refs? I mean, you know, what government doesn't doesn't want to kind of work the refs, right? Right. So so that's, that's part of it. And I can, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a big boy, you know, I've been at Trump rallies and had people scream at me and tell me I'm fake news. And, and, uh, it was still a good thing to be that I've been, you know, I've interviewed Afghan warlords who would happily kill me, but they, you know, at that precise moment, they wanted the Americans to drop a bomb on the mountain opposite. And so they were willing to, to have me in their encampment. So I, you know, the work of being a journalist, you know, you, you need to go and talk to people who don't necessarily agree with you or like you. And, and that's the deal. So I'm, I'm not particularly upset by that. What is worrying, and I think this was shown in the in the FCC uh, annual survey, which is based on you know asking journalists in China, you know how how their job goes at the moment, is there is a sense that the Chinese machine, and in particular things like the Communist Youth League, have been very right. effective at uh, whipping up uh, local public opinion. You know, so when we saw the floods in Henan province uh, in the summer of 2021, where in fact we recently just found out the central government uh, punished a whole bunch of officials who had covered up the the, the, the death toll there. Journalists who went down there to report this perfectly legitimate large news story, the Communist Youth League, among other kind of organizations, put out uh, notices on their social media feeds telling people there are hostile foreign journalists trying to make China look bad. Do not talk to them. You know, if you see them, tell us where they are. And you've got these kind of very angry crowds kind of chasing journalists uh, around Henan in a kind of fairly worrying way. 
And again, you know, it's not that, you know, if you're a foreign correspondent in a, in another country, you know, we are guests in China. So, you know, the Chinese people, they don't have to love me. Uh, I hope that they will, you know, answer my questions because I think I'm trying to report this place fairly, but you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not demanding kind of red carpet treatment, but there is a sense that the very powerful propaganda machine here is whipping up very deliberately, uh, something that goes beyond just kind of, you know, be careful about talking to foreign journalists. And I think in particular, one thing that I should say is that as a kind of middle-aged English guy with gray hair, I still have an easier time of it by far because some of the nastiest attacks, including from the kind of the nastiest online nationalist trolls, they're not just nationalists, uh, but they're also sexist and, and chauvinist. And, and the people who I think really deserve far more sympathy than some like me is Chinese-American or Chinese-Australian or Chinese-Canadian journalists particularly young women journalists. Right. I know Emily Fong at NPR was just uh, the subject of a, a really nasty spate of a, attacks online about some of her reporting. And it's not just Emily. There's a whole, there's a whole, there's, right. a, whole, there's, a, whole bunch. there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And, you know, they get, they get called, you know, you know, it's Araguay's and Tantien. And this idea, and, you know, all this horrible stuff about being race traitors. And, you know, and again, you know, one of the conversations I've had with, with Chinese officials is, you know, if you keep this up, someone is going to get hurt, physically hurt. And I don't think that's what you, that's what you want. And again, you know, I fall back on the fact that I'm a kind of Western liberal. You know, what I say to them is, if you tell me that a, a Chinese British journalist is not as British as me, you know, then you are, uh, to my mind, you know, that's racial prejudice. And if some right wing Western white politician said to me that a Chinese immigrant wasn't fully American, or wasn't fully British, that's racism, right? That's racism. Yeah. And I think that is that is the really troubling element to this kind of, uh, this level of nationalism. China is a very big country that does some very impressive things, that does some, some, some less impressive things and does some very wicked things, you know. But we have every reason to, to, to give it credit for the things it does well. And it is not that surprising when, a ch when any government tries to kind of work the refs and, you know, get the best coverage they can by intimidating us and, 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 you know, calling us out. You know, I've, I've, you know, I've interviewed Donald Trump and, and, you know, he asked me, you know, when are you going to write something nice about me? I mean, this is, it's, it's, you know, we're grown ups. This is how it works. But if they are making it toxic for young women journalists to work in China, or if they are driving foreign correspondents out of China because their families are under kind of, uh, such intimidation uh, that they can't even kind of go on holiday without their children being followed around by kind of secret police. I think there will be a cost. But that may be a, what the, the Chinese side sees as a benefit, right? Because then it opens the field for them controlling how the story is told. And then you can bring in a bunch of people or, or pull a bunch of people out of the sort of the foreigners working for state media. You know, hey, the new Edgar Snow, the new, you know, Agnes Medley. I mean, that, that is one of the things that I think, you know, potentially is kind of what they're trying to do which seems self-defeating. But as we've been discussing, what we think is self-defeating, the policymakers or some of them may seem as a success. So what I think they're confident of is that being aggressive and making us much more sort of jumpy is a win. But throwing all of us out, I think the people at the top get that that's not a win. Because, you know, the New York Times and the BBC and the Washington Post, they're still going to cover China, even if they can't have people in China. Right. And you know, a bunch of that coverage is not going to be stuff that China likes. You know, North Korea doesn't have any resident foreign correspondents, but it doesn't get a great press. 
And, you know, the other group, of course, but beyond the, the sort of the foreign journalists is, is all the PRC national journalists working for the foreign correspondents as, as researchers and, you know, journalists, I mean, many of them journalists in all but name because they can't legally be that. I mean, I've certainly, you know, been hearing some, some pretty distressing stories about how much pressure they're under. And I think that's, they're in almost an impossible situation, it seems like right now. They're amazingly brave people. They're, you know, completely integral to our coverage. And, and many of them, as you say, they're, they're journalists who in any other country would be, you know, getting to write stuff under, you know, with their own bylines. I'm incredibly cautious about, uh, about what we have our Chinese colleagues do now because they are under tremendous pressure. I mean, not naming news organizations, but the, you know, just the level of harassment uh, of them and their families and, and is really bad. And it's the most cynical attempt to make it difficult for us to do our jobs and to divide, you know, Chinese people from, from the Western media. But, you know, fundamentally at some level, this does not end well because, and this is not me just kind of talking up the kind of the, the role of the Western media, because I think we're sort of magnificently important people, but at some level, there's a big problem underway with this level of nationalism in, in modern China, which, you know, you know, I was in China in the 90s, you were in China in, in, in the 90s, I think, you know, we remember it was... Just, 80s, know, 90s, 2000s. Yeah, yeah. You, you were there before me, but it was, you know, it was not, you know, it was not a Jeffersonian democracy, right? It was a dictatorship, right. but, but this level of nationalism is, is much more serious now. Why does, that, why does that matter? Well, because I think that for a, a, a lot of particularly young Chinese, the gap between their self-perception and the outside world's perception of China has become kind of unbearably kind of wide. They think, you know, this country has never been so impressive and admirable, and yet I keep seeing foreign media kind of questioning us right. and criticizing us. And, they, and, and that just enrages them. They can't conceive of any sincere kind of principle on our part that would make us criticize China that way. And, you know, going back to... My conversation with the online kind of nationalist Sile, you know, when he was saying, well, how would the Americans take it if they were told that, you know, eating avocados was bad for the environment? When I said to him, but they, they are told that, you know, that, 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 that's, you know, that there are lots and lots of environmental NGOs that talk about, you know, sustainable fisheries or the cost, right. the carbon footprint of crops and things in the West. There's a, there's a kind of, a, the, the, the two countries are pulling apart and, and the pandemic has just accelerated that process. And so... If you're a Chinese nationalist, not only are you angry about being criticized, but you don't believe that the West is ever critical about itself. You know, you, you think that the West is only bent on criticizing China. And that gap in perceptions is, is just really dangerously wide. And widening, it seems like. I mean, I'm, I'm not there now, but it's certainly from everything I can see out, outside of China, it feels like that's what's happening too. Yeah. We need to know more about China. I agree. And, and, and report more about China. And I, you know, I don't just say that because that's how I earn my living. I think it's really, <laughs> really dangerous for us to think that the solution is less reporting about China. Well, and, and certainly, I mean, on all sorts of avenues, not just media, but all sorts of avenues, we're seeing a, a, a constriction of, of information getting out of China. And, um, you know, on the one hand, China is growing in importance globally and power globally. And at the other hand, our ability to understand the place seems to be getting harder. And, and it goes back to, I mean, it, it, we just, I think it'll be a mistake if we just sort of get forced into accepting the official version of what China is that's sort of disseminated through the sort of officially allowed and sanctioned outlets in China. That's going to, I don't think, maybe that'll help China, but I'm um, not sure it helps the rest of the world. And it's not compatible with China's ambitions to be yeah. a kind of high-tech superpower. You know, China wants to be a country that, that 
doesn't just kind of fundamental contradiction. Yeah, China wants to sell us, you know, vaccines and, you know, wants the Western world to buy Chinese vaccines and approve Chinese vaccines. Why has the FDA not yet approved Chinese vaccines? Well, one reason is because China hasn't released the data. Right. You know, right. You, you, you can't play this kind of uh, secretive, defensive hermit state and be a global high-tech superpower. And China is a very, very big country with a lot of good universities, a lot of smart people. It has every right to compete at the highest levels in global high-tech. But you can't do that right. if you're not willing to, to, to earn trust by sharing the data or by letting your companies be audited when they list uh, overseas. Right. You know, they, they need to decide. Or being able to handle legitimate criticism. I mean, certainly there, been, there has been illegitimate criticism and, you know, the, the attacks on the Western media. I mean, I know the BBC was, was a frequent target last year and, you know, I think they were, they were able to pull out some errors of the reporting and then magnify it, right? I mean, it's, it is a struggle. And I think one of the things I, I think, right, is on the Chinese side, um, they're very much geared up for this sort of ongoing struggle, global opinion struggle. And, you know, we're not. And we're never going to be because it's just not how our system is. Our systems are structured, right? So it so it's a it's a it's going to be an interesting few years. It is, and and it's a tremendous privilege to still be here. And uh, as long as I'm allowed, I'm going to keep you know letting Chinese people, letting their voices be heard, you know, in my column. That's that's what I think I'm here for. Okay, last question. Just given your experience you know, living in DC and and writing writing for the Economist from here. You know, where do you see U.S.-China relations going? It, and it's, there is a one direct connection to what we just talked about, the foreign journalists, right, where there theoretically has been some sort of an improvement or a deal around allowing more journalists from each side to go to the other country. Although what I've heard is that the Chinese side was, was been very clear that some of the folks who are forced to leave or more experienced are not going to be welcomed back. That it's going to have to be a whole new crop of people who go in for these places, which again seems to be, you know, we don't want people who are, have, priors or sort of longer time on the ground, potentially. We think that each of the big American news organizations is going to get at least one visa initially. There is going to be this deal done and it's, and it's high time. And you're right, as far as we can tell, the people who were expelled uh, or forced to leave are not going to come back. And, and you know, that's a real tragedy because, you know, I, I, I have Chinese officials say to me, we wish that the Western media sent people who speak good Chinese and who understand China. And I was like, Ian Johnson and Chris Buckley, Buckley. you know, they, these people lived for, for, you know, their, their depth of knowledge and their love for China was, you know, absolutely unrivaled. Right. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to throw those people out, you, you can't complain about, uh, about journalists who don't, who don't love exactly. China. The general sort of trend of U.S.-China relations, to be optimistic about the trend of U.S.-China relations, I'd have to be more optimistic than I currently am about the state of U.S. politics. Yes. And there's a kind of general observation, which is that I think that American democracy is in very bad shape right now. And I wish that some of the China hawks uh, in Congress, uh, particularly on the Republican side, who are also willing to imply, for example, that the 2020 election was stolen, that there was kind of massive fraud. Every time they say that stuff, they're making an in-kind contribution to the budget of the Chinese propaganda department. I, I agree completely. There, it's, a, it's a complete it's it's not a joke because it's too serious, but it's just ludicrous hypocrisy and short-sightedness. It's, it's disgusting. You cannot be a patriotic American political leader and uh, tell lies about the state of American democracy and then say that you're kind of concerned about China's rise. So there's a kind of general observation. 
about, uh, you know, if American dysfunction continues at this level, then, you know. No wonder the Chinese are so confident. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the Chinese, the Chinese line on President Biden is interesting. One of the big things about uh, my first couple of years here, when, when President Trump was still in office, was, you know, I'd see any number of people in the States saying confidently that Donald Trump was a kind of tremendous China hawk. I never believed, and I've interviewed Trump a few times and spoken to him about China and spoken to his China people. I never believed that Donald Trump himself was a China hawk. If you define a China hawk as someone who has principled objections to the way that China runs itself, I think that Donald Trump couldn't care less about the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. In fact, we know that he approved of what they were doing. Right. Couldn't care less about Hong Kong. Couldn't care less, frankly, about Taiwan. His objection to the China relationship was that I think he thinks the American economy is a kind of big piece of real estate and you should pay rent to access it. And he thought China wasn't paying enough rent. So he was having a rent review. I mean, that's what the guy does, right? It was about they needed to pay more and then he was going to be happy. So he was not a China hawk. What was really interesting was that here in China, officials would be pretty open by the end took them time to get their heads around Trump. Uh, you know, for a long time, they thought he was kind of New York business guy. Then they realized that was, you know, he wasn't actually like the other New York business guys they knew. And then they thought he was like a super China hawk. And then they realized that that wasn't true. By the end, they had him nailed. They thought he was a very transactional guy. And the kind of deal that they could do with him was one that they were kind of happy to do because it didn't really involve structural change on the Chinese side. Then their message about Joe Biden is that he is weak and old and lacks kind of uh, control of Congress, and that he is kind of, this is from scholars rather than officials, I should say, but their view is, you know, why would China spend political capital on the guy who's going to lose the next election? And, and not only the next election, but is probably going to lose control of, you know, the Congress in, in the midterms. Uh, House at least in, in yeah. nine, what is it, nine months or 10 months. So why worry? And that and the, the, yeah. they did, you know, and I think, I mean, one of the big milestones will be the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, which are supposed to, you know, the Trump administration, they came out in the December of the first year and then January for the NDS. It's February. We still haven't seen those here. I think, I think certainly, as you said, but certainly from the, from Chinese interlocutors, the sense is that they can't come to an agreement on what it should be, their the U.S.-China policy. Yeah. And, you know, China has some legitimate concerns. I mean, for example, if you are Xi Jinping and you're trying to work out how ambitious your climate change timetable is going to be? How much pain are you going to ask kind of coal-producing provinces in the Northeast to take uh, to, to get to kind of carbon neutrality as quickly as, say, you know, the Europeans are pushing you to do? And part of the equation is, you know, is America going to take some pain too? Or are we going to end up being uncompetitive because America's not actually going to do the right thing? Well, you know, Joe Biden can talk a good game on climate as an area for cooperation with China. But if he loses the next election and Donald Trump or someone like Donald Trump wins the White House, then if you're Xi Jinping, why would you, why would you kind of strike a, a, a painful deal with America right. if you don't think it's going to last beyond 2024? You'll, so, do, you'll do what makes sense for your country and not offer anything up to America because we already have a record of backing out of these deals. That's, that's the problem. So that has, real, that has real world consequences. The one thing that I will say about uh, the US-China relationship, and I'm very, very pessimistic about the, the, you know, the, the, the fact that the two sides don't, they don't share a kind of vision of how this ends well. Uh, there is no kind of end game that I think makes both sides happy. Yeah. Because I think the Chinese vision is America sucks it up and accommodates. Right. Resistance is futile. Yeah, exactly. And the American vision, I think, is that China stumbles, that China is making mistakes, that the state is getting involved in the economy too much, that Xi Jinping is centralizing power too much, and that somehow China is going to make so many mistakes that it kind of ends up defeating itself. I think that's 
one yes. of the arguments you kind of hear uh, in DC, right? It's wishful thinking. It's not yeah. necessarily based on a rigid, rigorous analysis. It seems Absolutely. like it's much more wishful thinking. So that is, that is a reason to be pessimistic about the kind of the medium and the long term. The one thing that I will say based here in China is that when I write really specific columns about things like, what does China think of the idea of Russia invading Ukraine? And I talk to kind of really serious scholars who spent their lives studying things like, you know, Russia policy or foreign policy or international relations. Or if I talk to really senior tech people, Chinese tech companies, they do take America's power very seriously. Even though there is absolutely sincere disdain for American political dysfunction, I think that, you know, America's innovation power, the areas of technology, whether it's sort of semiconductors or, you know, some forms of uh, AI algorithms where America just really is still ahead by a long way. The really serious people, when you talk to them off the record, they still take America seriously. And, and on that Ukraine example, what was, really, what was really interesting, that the prompt for that was seeing commentators in the US saying, you know, that Xi Jinping would like Putin to invade uh, Ukraine because this was going to be a test that Biden was going to fail and America was going to look weak and maybe that would lead Xi Jinping to then invade Taiwan. And when I spoke to Chinese scholars, really serious Chinese scholars of Russia, their argument was like, no, 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 no. Russia is, you know, an economy the size of Guangdong <laughs> and they sell us oil and gas, which is nice. But, you know, our trade with them is not enough to sacrifice our relationship with America. Thank you, David Reddy. That was a really good conversation, I think. Very useful, very illuminating. The links, some of the articles we talked about, the links will be in the show notes. And just a note on the schedule for the Cynicism podcast, uh, it is not uh, I think going to be weekly or bi-weekly as I thought originally. I'm still working it out, but it will be every, at least once a month, I hope is the plan, if not a little more frequent, depending on the guests. So thanks for your patience and uh, look forward to hearing from you. I love your feedback. The transcript will be on the website when it goes live. So please uh, let me know what you think. And as always, you can uh, sign up for Cynicism at Cynicism.com, S-I-N-O-C-I-S-M.com. Thank you. You have been listening to the Cynicism Podcast by Bill Bishop, author of the Cynicism Newsletter. You can read more about this in other episodes as well as sign up for the newsletter at cynicism.com. That is S-I-N-O-C-I-S-M dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving it a positive review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help. Thanks for listening.